Elves are wonderful. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. Tonight we are discussing Lords and Ladies, the 14th book in the Discworld series, uh, originally published in 1992, and the copyright changed here. It is now copyright done manifest and limited. Interesting. Yeah. So the copyright must have changed hands at this point. Uh, And there is an author's note before the book uh, starts, at least in my edition, suggesting pretty strongly to uh, have read at least Weird Sisters, if not Equal Rights, and definitely Witches Abroad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some kind of preface written by Terry, like, yeah, try not to link them too heavily together, but you gotta, these ones gotta be read together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting, because I don't remember that happening for any of the guards' books, even though a lot of those do rely quite heavily on each other. He sort of reintros the characters in each one of the guards' novels, whereas in this one, he just sort of starts. Yeah, this one just kind of picks up where Witches Abroad left off. Yeah, and you kind of have to know the saga of, like, say, Nanny sending the postcards home and... Mm-hmm. Um, okay, wait, we gotta do titles. Yeah, yes. let's, yeah let's, actually, say. Like, let's actually like do this. <laughs> right. We're professionals. We are. No, we're not. We're not paid for this. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, no. I work, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it's the opposite of that, at least for Aaron. <laughs> I am Aaron, understudy to the Rude Mechanicals. I'm Anna, and I'm an aspiring Morris dancer. I'm Justin, five-year subscriber to Bows and Ammo. I am Minna, and I happen to be practically the queen. So, when we last saw the witches, they were abroad on an epic road trip taking them on fairy tale adventures. Well, buckle up everyone because in Lords and Ladies, we're not dealing with fairy tales anymore. We're dealing with the motherfucking fae. But first, a glimpse into Lanker life, both past and present. Once upon a time, a young woman and her suitor ran carefree through the Lanker woods and mountains. The girl, the girl ran ahead to a ring of ancient standing stones, in which she met a woman wearing a crown, who offered her power if the girl only released her from the circle. The walls between worlds are thin, and time is running out. The queen will not have the chance to try again until the next time the walls grow thin and crop circles appear. In fifty years' time. And now... It's 50 years later, and once again, the corn in the fields lies down in flat circles. The witches return to Lanker and resume their lives after their trip. Granny and Nanny notice more circles, not just in the fields, but in herb gardens and other greenery. And Magrat is immediately distracted 
as Varence, the fool turned king, has anticipated her return and made arrangements for them to marry on Midsummer's Eve. Megret is shocked and perhaps dismayed that he assumed rather than asked, but goes along with the plan. When the witches reconvene for their regular meeting, Granny and Nanny are concerned about the circles, but refuse to explain themselves to Magrat. The two make a plan to go to the ring of standing stones, called the Dancers, to cut back the plants and prevent a circle from forming there. Upon reaching the Dancers, Granny and Nanny discover that the plants are indeed flat, not from a crop circle, but from being trampled by people dancing around them. They also discover the body of a hunter who appears to have been killed, or perhaps gored even, by something that came out of the circle. Each of those two older witches does her own investigations and they reach the same conclusion. A coven of aspiring witches has been meeting and dancing by the stone ring, possibly but not conclusively in the nud. The coven's ringleader, Diamanda, challenges Granny to a duel uh, scheduled for noon the next day. Granny is surprisingly shaken by these developments and confides to Nanny that she knows precisely who gave Diamanda her power. Granny returns home and begins to write her will, but is interrupted when she discovers also precisely what killed the hunter, a unicorn, and promptly chases it from her garden with an iron poker. Magret, meanwhile, is, uh, is feeling a thing, having some emotions. She is furious that the older witches continue to treat her poorly like she's some sort of naive child. And driven by this anger and her imminent new position as queen, she gathers all of her personal magical items from her cottage and dumps them in the river before heading to the castle. Unfortunately, things aren't much better there, though, as people have started to treat her, well, uh, like the queen. Magret is torn between social isolation as Varence is distracted by his own projects and the castle staff has become meek and deferent to her and she's torn between that and dismay at being relegated to etiquette and tapestry weaving and entertaining and she's maybe letting her new station go to her head just a little the next day the town including magrat gathers for the duel diamanda and granny are set to outstare not each other but the sun Unfortunately, in addition to this being a utterly unwise idea, just in general, on general principle, never do this, never stare at the sun, Granny is exhausted going into the duel as she pulls an all-nighter clearing plants from the dancers. Nanny has a trick up her sleeve, though, and ends the duel prematurely by luring her grandson across the magic circle with a bag of candy. Granny looks away from the sun to tend to the crying child, and while the duel is technically a draw, public sentiment swings in Granny's favor because she was the one who paid attention to the crying child. Granny finally confronts Demanda at the dancers and learns that her suspicions are really correct. Demanda got her power directly from the Queen of the Elves. Diamanda flees into the circle and vanishes, and Granny follows her in. She confronts the queen, grabs Diamanda, and escapes through the circle, but with complications. Diamanda is shot by an elf arrow, and Granny accidentally pulls an elf, now unconscious, thanks to Nanny and a uh, hastily and judiciously thrown punch, through the circle with her. So Granny and Nanny bring Diamanda and the stricken elf to the castle. Granny might be... A better witch, 
out of the two, but Magret is a better doctor. And so she is summoned to tend to Diamanda's wound. And Nanny explains the elves to Magret. Magret refuses to believe that elves are bad, actually, because all of the stories that she's read has painted them as good, pure, helpful, etc. Granny, meanwhile, convinces Varence to lock the elf in the dungeon and makes him swear not to tell Magrat. So the threat seems to have been dealt with. Yay. But Granny can't help but feel like she's missed something. It's now Midsummer Eve Eve. And Jason and the rest of the Lanker Morris men officially need to get cracking, practicing the entertainment for the wedding feast, which is a play written by a famous playwright in Ankh-Morpork. They can't seem to find a good place to practice in town, so the group heads to the dancers. The rehearsal ultimately involves more drinking than rehearsing, and the group fall asleep by the circle. After a night of strange dreams, they head back into town and prepare for the day, the wedding, and the play. Throughout all this, a rather interesting group of people has been traveling to Lankert to attend the wedding. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully of Unseen University received an invitation, and his interest was piqued both by the fact that he's an outdoorsy sort in general, and because he has fond memories of a summer spent long ago in Lanker chasing a beautiful young woman through the woods. He wrestles up an entourage for his trip to the country. The young wizard Ponder Stibbins, last seen in moving pictures, the librarian, and the bursar. On the way, they encounter a very strange highwayman, our friend Casanunda from Witches Abroad, who comes along with them to Lanker. Midsummer Eve is finally here. It's the day of Magrat's wedding, and she is fucking pissed. She found and removed the iron that Granny surreptitiously pr- placed around Diamanda. She also found a letter in Varence's bedroom. A letter from Granny. A letter that details precisely when Magrat would be back. And a letter that instructs Varence to simply plan the wedding. And not ask Magret, because Magret would just dither about it. Magret is determined to cancel the wedding, and Nanny attempts to change her mind unsuccessfully. Nanny leaves the castle for her hot date with Casanunda. Out in Lanker, things are also going awry. Ridcully and Granny reunite, and he teleports the two out of town and to the Lanker Bridge for a private conversation. They are rudely interrupted by an attacking unicorn and must leap off the bridge to escape. Once out of the river, Granny realizes that the queen is influencing her as the two get lost and walk in circles. And back in town, the entertainment has begun. Uh, And the players tell a tale of a king captured by the queen of the fairies. And things really start to go pear-shaped. Granny's next realization is that not only are she and Ridcully lost, but there are elves in the trees above them waiting to attack. Ridcully teleports away to get help, and Granny surrenders. Magrat is confronted with several simultaneous realizations. One, elves are bad. Two, there was secretly an elf in the dungeon. Three, Granny and Nanny have been telling the truth about the elves. Four, Granny and Nanny have also been concealing information from Magrat. 
Five, Sean Og has been captured by the elves. And six, she, Magret Garlic, is in imminent danger. Magret escapes by climbing out the window and up to the next floor, but the elves are on her trail. She knocks one into the garderobe and down several stories into a pile of material that we will not think about any further. Night soil. And flees, uh, finding and carrying Grebo the cat to the armory. On her way, she is inspired by the portrait of an ancient warrior queen of Lanker, and she begins to focus and harness that anger. Not unlike Rincewind harnessing the lightning. She dons the armor of the ancient warrior queen, shoots an elf through the keyhole with a crossbow, stabs and shoots two more elves, and rescues Sean. Magret mounts a fairy warhorse, which becomes docile at the touch of her iron armor, and rides toward the dancers while thinking of all the hidden messages and warnings in the folk songs and fairy tales that she's heard that she perhaps hadn't paid attention to until now. Back in the town, the elves are on a rampage, but the humans and, well, other creatures of the disc, let's not be speciesist, are fighting back. The castle beekeeper and falconer introduce the elves to the dangers of wasp poison and hawks, respectively. Jason and the other Morris men fascinate the elves with their dance and... Add some additional dance moves to knock the elves unconscious with their staffs. Nanny and Cassandra head to the ancient earthworks known as the Long Man, presumably such named after its humorous appearance from an aerial view. They travel through the caves and meet the King of the Elves, who Nanny outwits and implores to come help and stop the queen. The two return to town, uh, not entirely sure whether the king will help or not, in time to gather the forces of Lanker and push forward to one last fight at the dancers. Magrat, Nanny, and their army reach the dancers but are stopped in their tracks by elven glamour as they find Granny and the Queen locked in a magical battle. The two are evenly matched, and seeing that the battle will be at best a stalemate, Granny turns her focus to Magrat and frees her from the Queen's power. Granny's bees swarm out of their hives and cover her as she collapses to the ground. Before the queen can celebrate her victory, however, Magret attacks, grappling the queen while fighting off the glamour with pure rage. Just as Magret is about to strike the queen with her iron axe, however, the king arrives and everyone wakes up. It's the middle of the next day. The damage from the elves' rampage must be repaired. The dancers must be put back, but Granny Weatherwax is dead. Nanny and Magret read through her will, and Nanny realizes that Granny wasn't actually sure she was going to die. The woodpile is full, and, and things seem to be in order for her to keep going. And after reading the I Eatn't Dead placard, the two rush back to the castle, where Granny is lying in state. Magret smashes a window, and the bees pour in, allowing Granny's consciousness to return to her body. Magret and Varence finally are married, with Magret in the tatters of her dress and the armor of the warrior queen, Varence in his fool outfit, and the librarian as best man. And as for the unicorn, it reappears and Granny tethers it with a single hair and has Jason shoe it with silver, southering the queen's last link to the disc. And they all live happily ever after. Well, at least until Carpe Jugulum. <laughs> and that was the short summary. Yeah. I left out a lot, everyone. Yeah. I I cut all the stuff with Jason. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of book. 
Yeah, there's a lot of book, there's a lot of characters, a lot of whom we've met before. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's one of the reasons that it like really slaps us. It really assumes that you have read at the very least, which is abroad, and it doesn't bother with a lot of the kind of pleasantries of introducing characters. It's just like, okay, we know who everybody is. We're just gonna get running. But I will say that unlike a lot of Discworld books, it kind of all has the same plot. Like, there's not like two or three different plots running. It's just oh, yeah. a bunch of plots tied in by one mega plot. Yeah, there's one crisis. Um, and people, various people responding to that crisis, but it is, it's all one thing. We've got a little bit of the kind of traveling sequence with everybody converging in the same place. But broadly, yeah, it's it's really just one plot that's going on. Do we want to, do we want to go over the characters at all? Or are we, like Terry, just going to leave it and say, uh, y'all should probably know all of these and move on? I think it's worth bringing up some characters who aren't as prominent in former books, like Sean and Jason yeah, and the Lords and Ladies. Even the baby witches. Yeah. For lack the, of a The baby word. witches are new. <laughs> so we know the witches. We know... The wizards who came along, we know from previous books, it's the librarian, the bursar, Rid Cully, and um, what's his face? Ponder Stibbons. Yeah. Uh, we know Varence, he was the fool who became king. So we do have some Augs who become more prominent, and we have. <laughs> our some Jason villains. and our Sean, yeah. Yeah, our yeah. Jason and our, our Sean. Jason whose names, and our Sean. And we've heard these names a lot, but they never kind of like stuck out to me that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're like actual people now. Yeah, they have yeah. they have character arcs in this. Yeah, Jason Jason is, has apparently inherited the family business of being the smith in Lanker, which uh, might be sort of on par almost with being a witch, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he apparently paid a price, too, which is mentioned in the end. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things that I didn't cover in my summary because um, there's a, a scene at the beginning where Jason shoes Death's horse. Binky! Mm-hmm. Binky! Then Nanny takes one of the used horseshoes off of Binky and uses that as her kind of oh, talisman of protection. Oh, is that what the special shoe was? Yeah. I see. I missed that. Yeah. Death touched like, iron. I just didn't connect those two yeah Yeah. i i had such a hard time like leaving that out of the summary but it's so hard to tie in other than like three little things interspersed Mm -hmm. so i think the important thing about jason and the smithing is that i mean for the one thing there is like a sort of magical thing in that because he can shoe anything he has to shoe anything and it gives him a kind of responsibility Mm -hmm. and like an almost supernatural power at smithing or at least being a farrier. Um, but also the fact that specifically he works with iron is what's important here. Mm-hmm. Uh, touching on the fairies, which yeah, get- was interesting. And I wonder, I guess I don't know a lot of Smith and fairy stories, but there has to be some kind of like folklore basis for Smith's facing off with fairies because I've seen it in other stories too. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that the, uh, I mean, like, 
Terry Terry introduces like the love of iron, but like the 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 old old myths of like cold iron refers to a specific forging mm-hmm. process. Yeah. Um and a specific type of iron. And it's not and so I mean it, it's like and that's where it originally starts and then it's sort of disseminated throughout the years into however whichever author wants to interpret that. And then we have Sean who He's a good boy. He's like that character in like a sitcom that's a small town where he is the town like <laughs> Oh yeah, you just watched Northern Exposure, huh? Yeah, he's the person in the town who has like twenty different jobs. Oh no, he's Taylor from Gilmore Girls. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was of. just yeah. trying to place one and I think that <laughs> I was is like what I was, I was trying to like for. what was I thinking? And it's like, oh, he's Taylor, except like not a horrible person. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But he's just like he has twenty jobs at all, and he he is the sole member of Lanker's standing army, except when he's taking a nap. <laughs> yep, and he's the guardsman, and he's the court, whatever the person who plays the trumpet is, and he's, he's the, the, he's the announcer, and, and the groomsman, and the butler, and the cleaner out of the garderobe. Yeah. And I love I love the sequences of him just like running from job to job. Yes. <laughs> also, ah, mom. <laughs> <laughs> or however you pronounce that one of the. I also really love the other like small characters in in the castle, particularly the, yeah. the beekeeper and the the uh, falcon. Oh, those are both good. Yeah. Hodges. Ah. <laughs> Yes. I like the beekeeper a lot. It's another, he's another example of like a, a male almost witch yeah. in that he he knows mystic things and he has a responsibility. Yeah. And it, it, it almost feels like witches, beekeepers and fair and, and smiths all occupy the same general social strata. Yeah. Oh, well, you can go into things of like, these are, these are all professions that require specific learning. Mm-hmm. And, like I, I, I was going. I was reading out a science thing, and it's like, yeah, you know, scientists only discovered this thing. You know, like they, they you know, they thought there were king bees for hundred for you know up until recent, relatively recently. And it's like, but if you asked any beekeeper, they would exactly know what the fuck was up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, other char- do we want to update any other characters like Varence now that he's king or? Yeah. Varence has taken a. Um, a unique approach to kingship. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's bringing innovation to Lanker. The quote that in particular that I pulled is, no one had ever told Varence how to be a king, so he'd formed the unusual opinion that the job was to make the kingdom a better place for everyone. He's a good boy. Yeah. Then we have just sort of a gaggle of other people who work in the town. Oh, there's the teenage goths. Oh, yeah. Who are making all this trouble. <laughs> Diamanda, Perdita, Agnes. No, Perdita is Agnes, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I'm yes. getting them mixed up. There's a third one who I can't remember. It, no, it was... Um, Viol- Violet? Amanita. No, her, her real name is... No, 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 Amanita also, but Violet... Yeah. Her birth name is Violet, magenta. so she's either... Yeah, she's Magenta. Uh, Perdita right. is another Shakespearean character. Is it Twelfth Night? Not Twelfth Night. I forget what Winter's Tale. Shakespeare play, but not. I, I have a comment on these names at some point, which I think uh, which I think we'll get into later. 
in my like weird deep cuts section. There's a lot of interesting deep cuts in this one. Anyway. Um, yeah. So there's these teenage witches led by Diamanda. Diamanta? I don't remember which. Who want power and they've been reading all these occult books, I'm assuming. They're basically... They're the craft, kind of. Yeah. They're like teen goths. And Diamanda is definitely sort of the leader. I don't know if she has the most power on her own or if she gained it by making it some kind of deal with the queen of the fairies, but... And that's that's a good question. You know, Nanny and Granny kind of recognize that she has some actual, like, potential as a witch. But then also she's got a bunch of power just because she, like, signed on with the Queen of the Fairies. Mm-hmm. There's the Rude Mechanicals. I think that's that's most of the characters, I think. Yeah. Probably. I, I mean, there's the wizards, but... We know all we of know them already. <laughs> yes. Did we talk about the lords and ladies? I guess we should. We should. We get fey bullshit. Yes. Oh boy, is there some fey bullshit in this? Oh yeah. So basically the main antagonist is the queen of the fairies. um, By implication, Titania. She tries to reach... She's been trying to break into the world via the circle of stones known as the dancers. And she tried to make a deal with Granny when Granny was a young girl. And then failed. And now she's trying to make a deal with Diamanda and get through via her little group of witches. And that's uh, also... that That's going significantly better for her. Mm-hmm. And really, all the fairies want is to break into this world and just ruin. Like, they, they don't have a particular... Like, it's not even, like, a hunger. They just, they just want to ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. Because it will be fun. And mm-hmm. they don't have empathy. Yeah. Yeah, um, they are, I, I mean, I would say horrible, alien, and completely sociopathic. Yeah, about, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, we're, we're definitely going into the the old English, well, you, you stepped in a fairy circle, time to sign your will away. Uh, yeah. Level of. Which is my favorite kind. Of fairy. Absolutely. There's also, and he does show up eventually in kind of like the 11th hour, uh, Nanny Og enlists the help of the king of the fairies, who leads a completely different kind of fairy, has horns, and is probably Oberon in this situation. Mm -hmm. Unlike Titania, Titania wants to, like, work her way into the world. Oberon... I'm calling them that just because that's the king just wants to wait, wait this age out and just assume that eventually iron will go away and there'll be nothing left. And then people he'll be able to come back. There's really no puck analog in this. Is there? Nah, nah, which I think honestly is for the best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not as, it's not really a strong retelling of midsummer the way that, Weird Sisters was with Macbeth, and I think it actually is stronger for having strayed a lot more. Yeah, yeah. This this one is not the this one is not a we're going to we're going to do a riff on a thing. It's it's oh let's just fuck shit up. <laughs> and and it's like it's more in the Easter egg territory where like people who are myth- familiar with Midsummer will like get some of the 
jokes mm-hmm. and you know see Something some of the about parallels. Moonlight. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. But it's not like you need to be intimately familiar with Midsummer to enjoy yeah. this book. Mm-hmm. I like some of the ways it does touch on it, though. And this this might be a bad place to do this, but I really liked the moment where the, where Granny was like threatening to like basically soften the stories of the fairies cough cough much in the way the Victorians and even like people in Shakespeare's day did to the old fairy stories and at one yeah. point she turns to one of the fairies and says isn't that right fairy peas blossom or something yeah. oh yeah and the queen of the fairies is like that isn't his name and granny's like you sure but is it <laughs> which is like such a such a fun play both on like the fairies as a concept and the source material for this book mm-hmm yeah, and Nanny at one point threatens the king with just sort of suggesting to people that they, you know, make it into an archaeological dig. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Because it'd be, it'd be fascinating if they uh, were to dig up the hmm. long man. Fascinating. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we dug up these burial mounds? How'd a bunch of asshole wizards start poking around in it? <laughs> Yeah. So do we do we want to talk about broad impressions? I think I think we have the broad impression that we all really like this book. Yeah, yeah. no, the, Terry dug into my bullshit on several levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh it's fun. It's uh I it's a book that like starts in third gear. Um for the most part it, it's like you get a little bit of like oh, let's go home, pick up the mail and then we're just going to go right on yeah. Definitely there's just a lot more going on in this book. It's dense. But in it's a nice dense. way. Yeah, Granny Weatherwax is kind of Sherlocking the shit out of this whole thing. Like <laughs> it's very clear that she knew this whole thing was coming and she was just putting everything in place. Yeah. The the way that she does. Which is sort of an like I guess I can save this for later, but you know, it's it's interesting how they set Granny against the elves in that binary. Because, like, she basically treats people like pawns kind of like how they do, but it's for, you know, benefit as opposed to, like, just for fun. Yeah. And and with uh, with this book, we're still in the realm of, of the Discworld books that I remembered, like, the feel of, but not the actual content. So I remembered more of this in Small Gods somehow, but, like... There's a few moments like shooing the unicorn was really clear in my memory, um, but I'd completely forgotten about all the history between Granny and Ridcully. But this this book slaps like it's dense, but it keeps moving. You know, honestly, you know, we talked about having potentially a guest for this book. And in, in retrospect, I think I'm glad that we didn't um, mm-hmm. just because I think that we would have been doing a disservice to that person. <laughs> By not having them read Witches Abroad first. And Witches Abroad is like not a great book. Hmm. So I think I think it's a difficult book to jump into if you aren't if you haven't read the other witches books already. It's it's funny, the one thing I remember this is such a weird detail to fix out on, but the one thing that I remembered most about this entire book was the like Morris Dancer Tortuga maneuver that they were doing. The what? Where they were, they were very carefully like dancing up to the, um, like using the Morris dance tactically to keep the, the elves at bay as they moved. Yes, I just didn't understand the Tortuga reference. 
you know, like the like Romans would build like a tortuga out of their shields. I didn't know. It was Isn't that what's called, called that. Justin? Uh, it's testudo. Testudo. Oh, I, st- I still would have gotten that, but you said tortuga. My brain went to like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I, yeah. I was like thinking like I was thinking specifically of the scene with Jack and Will. Like carrying, like stepping, like like carrying the boat underwater so they can breathe. I I rewatched. Like, by the way, I rewatched Black Cur- uh, Curse of the Black Pearl like less than like a couple weeks ago. That movie it is way longer than I remember. It's like two and a half hours. <laughs> um, so it's like it's 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 get in there in like Lord of the Rings territory, but honestly, mm-hmm. still slaps. Uh, any any other broad thoughts? Because I feel like there's a lot we want to dig into, but yeah. Well, one of my broad thoughts is that I'm I'm really happy that we got the witches back in Lanker because they work so much better there. Like mm-hmm. they're back on their home turf, and well, it can be fun seeing them in other places. Um, the like f- fantasy fantasy New Orleans was a mistake. Well, and for me, the thing I really love about the witches is that they're so embedded in their community. They have that, (laughs) like, pull of responsibility along with, like, the weird power that they have. Yeah, like, they're so much better when we can have the things of, like, well, I I talked to Arshan and he Mm -hmm. said da 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 da. I think think that's just a general strength of Terry's is that he works better portraying members of communities and how they interact with those communities. Yeah. Um, but he just has a problem of wanting to bounce from place to place. And his like community that, that's based part books of, are the best ones. Yeah. I mean, like, and it's why I like the, it's like why the Ankh-Morpork books that are centered in Ankh-Morpork. Oh, particularly got, the guards ones. They're very, they're very lived in. Jumping Rincewind ones, it doesn't really feel like a lived-in world as much. And there isn't, like, familiarity. And so people can't be, like... People can't be in their element as much. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the witches are highly competent protagonists, or at least two out of three of them are. Magrat is highly competent. It's just that she's highly competent at different things than the other mm-hmm. two. Like, there's the line in there of, like, you know, that... Granny might be the better witch, but Magrat's the better doctor because, like, she. Granny knows that anything would work in a pinch, and Magrat thinks that it matters what herb you use. Right. So Magrat does the research. I think yeah. my distinction instead is is not is not that like more competent. It's that between Nanny Og and uh, Granny Weatherwax. It's not competency, but it's just that they 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 wheel and deal faster. I guess would be the best way to put it. I feel like it's also intelligence versus wisdom. They trust themselves, which is kind of the most important component of being a witch, and Magrat Mm -hmm. is not there yet. Yeah, she doesn't trust herself. Deep down, she's got that rock-hard certainty that that is a witch's best weapon. It just, she has to reach really hard to get it. Mm -hmm. She's getting there, though. We got to see her do it finally in this book, and I think even, like, she managed it a bit in, was it Weird Sisters? When push comes to shove, Magrat's good. She's just really, really anxious until then. Mm-hmm. Which mood? So yeah, this is definitely a like hard-on plot book first. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's not really a social commentary book, although there's definitely moments. 
As a side note, are we skipping the confusing portion on purpose? Because I do have one. Well, well you didn't fill it out, so we didn't know you had I, I forgot to fill out the Yeah, document. let's talk about something you found confusing. Caught by the incunables. I don't understand what that's supposed to be. I want to guess that it's some sort of, like, unmentionables. Or, like... Like the the grab grab them by the the gonads or whatever. Um, well, and also an incunable is a book pamphlet or broadside printed in Europe before the 16th century. Ah, that's what I was looking for because it's he's been lured with promises of books and incunables, and I, I don't right. know what the fuck incunable was. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to look it up. I can bring it to the confusion part. <laughs> mm-hmm. Excellent. They're not manuscripts. They were printed. Cool. But they were early printing. So it's just like, I think he's just using it as like a, you know, really, really early books. Actually, just a straightforward thing that the librarian, as a librarian, would be interested in. Mm-hmm. I think there's some stuff that gets brought in here. Um, uh, we get a we get some nice bits on like, let's say historiography. Mm hmm. Like how, um, and I think this loops into a larger thing that is in our notes as well about memory. But like, there's so a lot of stuff about how, especially when when like uh, Nanny's meeting with the king about how humanity has made their own iron in their minds to protect themselves against the fae by sanitizing them, editing their histories, yeah, even if it's unconscious. They, they have iron in their minds now. Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that idea of the iron in the mind. That also ties in with a little bit of how, like, history gets sanitized, like, with the uh, war, with the, the, Lan- Lan- the Lancrian warrior queen, uh, Yinsi. Yeah, and I think it's actually, there's some interesting mirrors or echoes or something like that of small gods in here, too. Like, weirdly. Mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of one of them. There's definitely some witchy atheism in there. Might be a little bit of bleed. Yeah, but, like, even past that, the, like, I think one of the pieces of the iron in the mines is, like, that people have better explanations from things and that mm-hmm. they, like, don't need folk tales anymore. Which is, you know, interesting considering then what Magrat does when she's going up to battle and, you know, digging through her memory of all of these tales for, for clues. I think yeah. that's honestly Magrat finding her own particular kind of strength where she, Granny manipulates stories. I think Magrat uses stories to manipulate herself into believing in herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the, which I think is underscored by the fact that she believes that the spirit of Queen Incy is helping her when Queen Incy never existed. But it's an important lie for her. <laughs> it's an important story for her. She needs that story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes her a good witch, but it helps her. <laughs> for this one, choice is really, really important. This is the one that gets into alternative universes and like all of the different ways that Granny's life could have gone. And specifically, mm-hmm. her own choice to stand with people instead of with the fairies to be a witch and not mm-hmm. whatever the queen is offering is like central to this story. And I don't know, it's, and also, I mean, Magrat, it ties in with Magrat's thing too, where she's having to 
she kind of had her choice taken away from her, and she's real pissed about it for, like, seven-eighths of this book, <laughs> frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, either by turns annoyed and just lost. So I, I think it's that having to decide what path you're going to take, and yeah. No, that's really solid. That's good, like, because, you know, um, Nanny and Granny have that conversation walking back from the baby goth co- coven uh, about, you know, how they started and yeah. Nanny's talking about how she, you know, was got turned away so many times and Granny was like, I didn't get chosen, I chose. I never stood in front of no one, said Granny Weatherwax distantly. I camped on old Nanny Grape's garden until she promised to tell me everything she knew. Huh, that took her a week and I had the afternoons free. You mean you weren't chosen? Me? No, I chose, said Granny. The face she turned to Nanny Og was one she wouldn't forget in a hurry, although she might try. I chose, Githa Og, and I want that you should know this right now, whatever happens. I ain't never regretted anything. Never regretted one single thing, right? Yeah, that's that's a good good set of lines right there. So good. Yeah. Speaking of iron, she's iron through and through. Yeah. I love her so much. I love her more with every book. Even with the romance storyline in this, which I wasn't a huge fan of. It was it, it fit very well with like I feel like for her it wasn't her romance here. so much as just fond remembrance of a romance. No, that's true. I don't think it was a current romance storyline. Yeah. And it's not really clear like how into it she was back then either. There's like some echoes of Apollo and Daphne in this one that I found really intriguing. Except she always manages to outrun. There is that line about, like, Nanny Og saying something about how she could always run faster than anyone else, and so she never got caught. Whereas Nanny could run faster than most people, so she did a lot of catching. No, she did a lot of tripping over any route she could find. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah so, sometimes it took me, took me a real long time to find uh, a route to trip over. Nanny's a delight, too. Yeah, I love Nanny so much. I'm really relieved that despite the fact that this could easily have been a setup for like, oh, this sad old woman who's alone, it didn't do that. Thank God. <laughs> because yeah. I, the great thing about Granny is that she's just totally content in who she is because she can't be literally anyone else. Mm-hmm. Even knowing that other versions of her exist that are different. What will circle back to that in just a second I'm Mm -hmm. sure anyway choice that's my theme choice and and memory and remembrances and and you may be misremembering yeah yeah it's it's kind of wild going from small gods to this because like small gods was had so much theme to it like it had so much of a thesis statement to it and then this is like action I also really like how complicated and nuanced uh, Megrat and Varence's love is. Gosh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she wrestles with all sorts of emotions. These are folks I'm like suggested like, maybe you should have had a longer engagement or gone on a couple more dates. At like, which point? Not, well, not like gunpoint, but just like with like Nanny and Granny, just like meddling a little bit more. <laughs> like the meddling is, I'm not going to say great, but maybe a slower burn meddling would have worked. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I feel like 
Nanny w- should have been the one to do the meddling, not Granny. <laughs> like, I feel like what we ended up with was... Yeah, Granny doesn't know how to make a marriage work. <laughs> yeah, like... She, she meddles with a crowbar. Yeah, Granny was just like, Magrat's fucking indecisive, so just tell her you're getting married and, like, it'll be done. Yeah. And, like, I feel like Nanny would have been a lot more subtle about it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's clearly that is not a method that actually, like, all's well that ends well. Haha, ha, Shakespeare reference. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> all's well that ends well, but like, that that led to a lot of turmoil for Magrat that was completely unnecessary. What was it though? It, it was, Granny needed her in that state. Okay. Yeah. That's so, like, true. how far does the rabbit hole go, right? Well, no, 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 because how far... I don't think that Granny knows that it's going to be... I don't think that when they're out abroad, Granny knows that the fairies are going to break through in the near I future. Think, well, Granny knows it's every 50 years. Yeah. What? Is it? Pretty sure, yeah. I missed that entirely, if so. It's it's a subtle bit, but it was... I think it's implied at a couple of points that, like... Granny would have known that who was coming because she knows the timeline for it. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think that that's probably op- open to interpretation. But like, yeah, it's it's a good question. Like, I agree all's well that ends well. And like, it ended up working and Magrat needed to be that mad. But woof. If they hadn't had the like, major existential disaster coming. There's not even, like, a precise measure on when Granny had to make that choice, though. It's like 50 or 60 years is the most accurate that gets. I don't think that Granny did that because she needed a queen. I think she did that because she, in her own horrible way, cares about Magrat. But refuses to talk to her about it like an adult. Right. I mean, it could also have been, you know, both. Because (laughs) handy tool. So can we talk about magic? Yes. Let's Let's talk talk about magic. magic. Oh boy, we get a lot more specifics about both witch and wizard magic, or at least the the magic that 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 Ponder is investigating. Oh yeah. I, I love this first glimpse into like the high energy magic building and like wizard quantum mechanics and ponder is wonderful and i love him thoms and reasons and right current research indicates that each reason is itself made up of a combination of at least five flavors known as up down sideways sex appeal and peppermint god that was so <laughs> fucking uh, okay we, i, I want to go into this like in a little bit more detail later but the footnotes of this book are so fucking funny yeah <laughs> Like these are the best ones by far, and a lot of Terry, the Terry special footnoted footnotes too. Yeah, the the footnotes really slap in this one, uh, and so I I like the quantum mechanics stuff with the the whole Discworld thing of the one in the million chance. Hmm. There's this idea of like, what if all of the Discworld books that we read they they all kind of follow the the leg of the quantum trousers where that one in a million chance actually happened because that's what's that's what's interesting to read about right the trousers of time i'm so happy they've appeared but it's such an interesting like 
pulling this kind of reason for this narrative device of like, I, I feel like they dovetail together nicely. Yeah, the the way that they describe the Terry describes at least how Granny does like big M magic is like she pokes through the multiverse for the one where, for example, Nanny's hat gets exploded by a lightning bolt. Yeah. Which is just so like brute force magic. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then we also see a little bit more magic magic. Like I don't think we've seen wizards really use anything other than like, you know, lightning bolts and and fireballs and stuff since sorcery. Uh, moving pictures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there there is some stuff that goes on with pictures, but yeah, we get we get to see like wizards doing bamfing. Yeah. And uh and Reaper Man. Oh uh, yeah. Because remember the the Dean like is like hey. zap zap bam bam. It's a book that features wizards that does not have the right of Ashkente. Oh shit, you're right. <laughs> oh shit. This is like this is like the first book we've read where like something is happening. Uh, well, that, we're just going to solve this like fucking wizards and not ask Death to answer all our questions. They're taken very much by surprise, and they're literally just all scattered immediately when everything happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they don't have time to do the Rite of Ashkenti. <laughs> Instead, it's just Rid Collie just going pew 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 pew. <laughs> uh, bless him. Bless him. <laughs> oh, Rid Collie. And grad student Ponder Stibbons swinging a sword around. Yes. Any other things we want to talk about trope-wise? Like, do we want to talk more about general Shakespearean things in here or not? I mean, the Shakespearean stuff is, like, really... I enjoyed it a lot, the way that it engaged with... Specifically because I have very strong feelings about the end of Midsummer and, like, the idea of, like, theater as a kind of magic and also dreams as a kind of magic and the way that that ending kind of, like, squishes all three things together. And then this book just went for that. And I was like, yes, this is also a thing I love about Midsummer. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> okay, so there was a concept. I don't have a reference for this because the last time I talked about this was in 2016 in college. But there was, like, sort of an idea that, like, the theater, like, actors embodying characters it could become a kind of magic that transformed both them and the audience and that mm-hmm. is just the way that that ties into Terry's choice to have the play literally fucking summon fairies and then the actors start becoming like sucking the audience in so that they start really believing even though they're very bad actors oh, yeah it was just a really good choice on Terry's part Oh yeah, and Terry's so into that idea too because you have like to Weird Sisters, he's a nerd about it. Yeah, yeah, Weird Sisters was built on that idea, and I love it. Yeah, it's such it's such a good good trope. I agree that the Shakespeare references in this one were so much better because it's not even that they were necessarily more sparse. There was a lot, um, but it wasn't like trying to mimic the structure of a specific play. And it wasn't, like, doing bad stereotypical versions of characters for laughs. Yeah. And it wasn't trying to mash together two plays in a way that ended up not working. Do we want to talk about about the the button? Or buttons? Yeah. um, 
I'm gonna go with my little one, which is that uh, Varence has some. We'll call it. We'll call it hangups. PTSD. Trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and has some coping mechanisms and learned behaviors that are very hard to unlearn. And as somebody who has several of those learned behaviors that have, um, are very hard to unlearn, that was a little bit too real for me in that moment. It's a good scene. It also said it also said a lot about how he sees the kingdom because um, when he was a fool, he slept in front of the door of the king. Uh, and so the actual text says, as far as Varence had been concerned, a crown, crown simply changed which side of the door you slept. He had always slept in front of the door of his master. And now he was king, he slept in front of the door to his kingdom, seeing that the the kingdom is now his master. It's so interesting because... Like you said, Justin, it's like got that trauma learned behavior aspect to it, but it also has this aspect of like, you know, saying something really fundamental about how he views the kingdom and his relationship to it as king. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's a, it's a like there's a lot of just that like one scene of just like Varen's. I throughout this book we like we get like a lot of looks into how Varence has approached kinghood and he doesn't really touch any of the, like the, the fineries or doesn't try to utilize a lot of the privilege he has in that. Yeah. He yeah. tries, he tries to create a parliament so that people can have a say in their own governing. And everyone's like, no, that's you're the king. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do the governing. We don't want to do it. Yeah. I think one of my buttons was like, weirdly less a button and more just a really a piece of writing that I really love out of this book and I think it's one of my favorite Terry lines that's not one of the famous lines like the the Vimes boots thing etc it's the elves are wonderful they provoke wonder elves are marvelous they cause marvels elves are fantastic they create fantasies elves are glamorous they project glamour Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meanings. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. I love that piece of writing with the the mirroring, the like adjective and noun. And by the time it hits, elves are terrific. They beget terror. Like, Mm -hmm. because if it had started with that line, it wouldn't work, right? It's this nice piece of writing that each line builds upon the next or builds upon the previous and, like, culminates in elves are terrific. They beget terror. And it's just such a nice little piece of writing that I absolutely love. It's also kind of beautiful foreshadowing for Granny's thread about the fairies, or like, mm-hmm. as the stuff about them gets watered down more and more, and people forget they're gonna start losing their power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also got another line that I highlighted that had an annotation of "oof." So you know, there's that. Then shame on you, woman," said Granny. "It's an animal. Animals can't murder. Only us superior races can murder." That's one of the things that sets us apart from animals. Give me that sack. 
Where they're talking about the unicorn. Yeah. Like that, that somebody describes that the unicorn murdered the hunter and, mm-hmm. you know, and thus deserves to die. And Granny is saying, like, no, it just acted based on its nature. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we should let it roam free, but we shouldn't just kill it. I like that contrast, too, though, because sentient ra- sapient races are still a kind of animal, because I think Granny also contrasts that with the fairies who, mm-hmm. you know, don't have that. That word that starts with M. Well, yeah. <laughs> Empathy. Yeah, I know what you're referencing. I just, I thought there I was, was some really... I was like trying to do it and I was like, M? Magnanimity? Emotion? <laughs> <laughs> That I got there works. real quick. <laughs> I was, I was. I got there even before someone was trying to put themselves in in that point of view. <laughs> I've spent too much time with these witches now. The other thing that really stuck out to me was the witch duel, uh, specifically how it ended. And, and you know, I mean, I guess Nanny understands how the town views witches better than the baby goths do because the the way it ends is you know granny stands up and looks away from the sun to help a crying child which you know from what we know about about granny seems both in and out of character but also like she she does that because it's what a witch does right like she does that because she has an obligation to do it not because she likes it like Mm -hmm. she doesn't like tending to the small sticky child Right, but she does. But she does it before she's moving. Before she's even thinking about it, because like, who isn't going to tend to the small sticky child? Like, it's a small sticky child that's crying. Like, you tend mm-hmm. to it. That's what you do, because like you're a human. You know. I don't even think it's only that though. Like, clearly, not all humans are going to immediately jump to yeah. tend to the small sticky child. The one who jumps to do it, whether they like it or not is proved to be more the witch because that's so integral to what being a witch is in this Mm -hmm. world. You have that responsibility to the community. And like, you know, caring, caring for the people in the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of, we haven't seen a lot of it in a while, but it's almost going back to that thing in equal rights where like, we see how they're like a, like an irreplaceable part of the community that like so much flows through them and, it's it's so fun. Oh, I, I found the reference I wanted, and it was actually Magrat who was thinking it. And it was, like, in a moment of, like, being kind of oppressed by fairiness. They steal cattle and babies. They steal milk. They love music and steal away musicians. In fact, they steal everything. We'll never be as free as them, as beautiful as them, as clever as them, as light as them. We are animals. But I think that the fact that people are, are animals is separates them in a good way from fairies elves yeah that that line is an interesting mirror to the one that i quoted mm-hmm. oh, i keep losing possible buttons there's just so many yeah granny says has so many good speeches in this one i did like the line also um where where Nanny's like, well, but all of those things, you know, gods, demons, all those things exist. And Granny's like, well, there's no call to go around believing in them. It only encourages them, which is a, 
a theme that that we've hit before in Small Gods and uh, in previous witch books too. Yeah, that was wild right after Small Gods. Mm-hmm. Because Small Gods, like, that's so wild coming right after Small Gods. Because Small Gods, the entire thesis of it is that, like, if you stop believing in, like, the heart of the thing, it stops existing. Oh, okay, yeah. And speaking of, you know, sapient creatures versus the elves, uh, Granny in her in her sort of final confrontation with, with the queen, uh, you call yourself some kind of goddess and you know nothing, madam, nothing. What don't die can't live. What don't live can't change. What don't change can't learn. The smallest creature that dies in the grass knows more than you. You're right, I'm older. You've lived longer than me, but I'm older than you. And better than you. And madam, that ain't hard. Yeah, that's such a that's such a good speech. Also from that confrontation, I ain't against gods and goddesses in their place, but they've got to be the ones we make ourselves. Then we can take into bits for the parts when we don't need them anymore. See, and elves far away in fairyland. Well, maybe that's something people need to get need to get themselves through the iron times. But I ain't having elves here. Get themselves through the iron times. That's a fascinating line. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a bit almost breaks the fourth wall where we remember. Yeah, we're living in the Iron Times and we're reading fantasy. <laughs> uh, maybe Terry nuking uh, ethnographers from orbit. Oh my god. And historians. And, yeah. Like, oh my god. Oh, I guess ethnographers. I, yeah, we're talking about the same passage. Oh my god, that yeah. passage is so good. Yeah. Uh, a few generations ago, King Lully I had been a bit of a historian and a romantic. He'd researched what was known of the early days of Lanker, and where actual evidence had been a bit sparse, he had, in the best traditions of the keen ethnic historian, inferred from revealed self-evident wisdom, asterisk, made it up, and extrapolated <laughs> from associated sources, dagger, had read a lot of stuff that other people had made up, too. <laughs> Terry, Terry could be brutal. I think I actually found the one I wanted to talk about, which is... Uh, this is more ta- uh, Granny talking to the Queen. She just there's so many good bits, and I just highlighted so much of this passage. Humans take, they plow with iron, they ravage the land. Some do, I'll grant you that. Others put back more, and they take. They put back love. They've got soil in their bones. They tell the land what it is. That's what humans are for. Without humans, Lanker would just be a bit of ground with green bits on it. They wouldn't even know their trees. We're all down here together, madam. Us and the land. It's not just land anymore, it's a country. It's like a horse that's been broken and shod, or a dog that's been tamed. Every time people put a plow in the soil or planted a seed, they took the land further away from you, said Granny. Things change. Which is such an interesting bit. Yeah. I'm not even sure I fully, like, am there with it. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that line. But it's also that this book kind of touches on, like, like, the king as embodiment of a land thing a little bit. Like, there's references to basically the king curing diseases. They went for dandruff, but you know they're talking about scrofula or whatever. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the whole queen's thing is like, ooh, I want to, I'm going to marry the king. Yeah. Because so the, the king and the queen are the one, and the king is the land, and if I'm the land, yeah. it's so fact of, boom, I got a free pass. So it kind of... It drills in on that that thing that Terry has been dancing around the whole book, that concept of like the land as an idea that's embodied in people, in specific people. And it's, I don't know, it's it's different. It's, I, I haven't quite thought about it as much as I would like to, but it's it's definitely a different take than I think we've seen before from her. And 
It's just quite interesting. <laughs> it's a little bit more like pro-civilization that you than you sometimes expect from Granny. Yeah. Yeah. Because she doesn't necessarily like civilization that much. Yeah. I think the heart of it is that that it's that like a place isn't about the physical landscape or the natural forces. It's about the community that lives there, I think is what it's going for. But there's also like a hint of <laughs> what'd be like about the book? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think we touched on it. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to continue to. Yeah. I have a note here that the librarian is quickly replacing the luggage as my top tier. Um, <laughs> that's that's just because the luggage is associated with Rincewind and is only marginally uh, relevant. The librarian is a king mm. and we stand. Yes. He's getting better at not immediately flipping his shit over the, the um, ape yeah. monkey but thing. But he fucks up a troll! <laughs> <laughs> which was honestly one of my favorite parts he only like, gives blame where blame is is deserved yeah i i think it's a good thing because it's like you get to sort of pull that once a book well he does chuck the, the he does chuck carpenter into the into the river later it's not a thing you can like really go back on a lot and the troll one is just so funny because it's a fucking troll mm-hmm also, we're going to go back onto this. Um, the footnotes in this book are so good. The Monks of Cool yeah. just might be my favorite. I wish that the ebooks were better at formatting the footnotes. My other last thing is I feel like Casanunda is sort of a course correction for Grebo. Like, like it, it's like we want to have horny jokes. So we're just going to introduce this dwarf who honestly is for the most part pretty wholesome. Yeah, he's like, he's really like uh, I, I love he's not that a he's, he's like achieved his status as Disc's second greatest lover by by trying harder, you know? Like you know, he he's very genuine about being like a good guy and a good lover, I guess. Um, and it's it's really refreshing, honestly. Like he's not trying to use like seductive wiles or whatever. Like he's he's really genuinely like interested in Nanny, etc. Because she's basically a teenager to him. Yeah. Well, I just they're just so sweet. I love how endlessly fascinated Casananda is by Granny. Like, by all of these aspects of Granny that, like, other people Nanny. might find somewhat distasteful, he's just like, love it. Here for it. And you know yeah. what? <laughs> that's, that's fun. Oh, and so for, for like, little favorite bits, one of my favorites is the line, using a metaphor in front of a man as unimaginative as Red Cully was like a red flag to a but was like putting something very annoying in front of someone who was annoyed by it. <laughs> the audible record scratch. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that I loved was the ongoing bit of like Weaver the Thatcher and Baker the Carpenter <laughs> and Carpenter the Weaver among the Morrismen. It was uh. 
it's such a good ongoing bit in this nominative anti-determinism yeah we get that with the the uh the virtue names as well oh yeah oh god yes <laughs> bestiality carter over, yeah over bestiality carter I think one of the things I really liked was when McGrath goes all John McClane for a couple of pages. Yeah. Um, I mean. And then is like record scratch. Wait, what? What What did I just do? I, what? Did I just shoot an elf like through the eye? I mean, eye? I'm sort of surprised there wasn't a like, now I have a crossbow, ho, ho, ho reference. <laughs> Honestly, at a certain point, I was just expecting her to say, tell someone, do you feel lucky? Do you, punk? Because so many, there were so many. I just think like, she already does. Does she? God. Uh, there's the, go ahead, make my right. quiche. Okay, yeah. Right, right. Go ahead, yeah. make my quiche. Go ahead, yeah. make my quiche. I'll be back. And my brain is just like, what other cliche action line can we I throw mean, in she, here? She just goes like... She gets infused by the spirit of this warrior queen, and at one point, there's, they're they're talking about she and Sean are talking about what to do with like the the one elf that they haven't killed that she hasn't killed yet, and she's like, "Well, I'll just stick him in chainmail." And he's like, "How are you going to get the things over his arms?" And she sort of looks speculatively at this battle axe that she has and at the at the elf's arms. Yeah, I I highlighted that I highlighted that and said. Oh, in the notes. Um, the the martial versus marital arts screw up too. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. I wonder if it was the same martial arts um, from Bob oh, Sang Dibbler or whatever. The ones Magrat was learning. Yeah. Oh my God, Magrat and Arshan bonding over martial arts. Please <laughs> give me this. I really hope so. I also appreciate that there was far less Grebo content and like the Grebo content that was there was not like weirdly sexualizing a cat, but was like, we took this, of fury. we took this like angry Tomcat and put him in a box and then Magret weaponized it. Yeah. He's literally compared to a Claymore mine at one point. Chekhov's Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> they tease the Schrodinger's cat concept states. throughout the book, and then there's this box that's shaking, and you're like, "Oh, hmm." <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate that it's not weird sexual stuff. It's just Grebo. It's it's Terry Pratchett's Rottweiler jokes, but transposed onto a cat. There's a couple of old ballads about fairies that I have just really liked for a long time. So there's a point where the the rude mechanicals are wandering through the woods looking for a place to pra- or practice or coming back from practice. Let's go right, said Jason. Nah, it's all briars and thorns that way. All right then, left then. It's all winding, said Weaver. What about the middle road, said Carter. Jason peered ahead. There was a middle track, hardly more than an animal path, which wound away under shady trees. Ferns grew thickly alongside it. There was a general green, rich, dark feel to it, suggested by the word bosky. His blacksmith's senses stood up and screamed. Not that way, he said. And I was instantly like, don't go that way! That's the way to Elfland! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a passage in Thomas the Rhymer, the ballad. At least some of the versions. The version that I like has that passage. It's like, and see you not yon narrow road so thick beset with thorns and briars. 
that is the path of righteousness, though after it but few inquires, and see you not yon braid braid road that lies across the lily leaven. That is the path of wickedness, though some call it the road to heaven. And see you not yon, yon bonny road that winds about the ferny bray. That is the path to fa fair elfland, where thou and I this night on guy. I don't know why I have that memorized, mostly. <laughs> I've just read that poem a lot. I love the Tamlin bits as well. Yes, the <laughs> Tamlin bits where she's like, yeah, yeah, no, this is... Thomas Thrymer and Tamlin are dear to my heart. Yeah, so. and it's like Margaret is like on the fairy horse mm -hmm. headed to rescue her husband or nearly hu husband. And it's like, I think I remember a folktale about this. Yeah, going, uh, going to rescue your fiancé from fairies. Also, there was a bit that lingered on like, a crossroad at night, and I was like, I know this isn't setting up Miles Cross, but what if it was setting up Miles Cross? <laughs> the references are so good, both both on the Shakespeare side and on the folklore side. In, in this book, Terry read by diary. I think that magic as science is a particularly... It's not a bad concept, but nobody does it well. Um, I think that you can, I, I think that there are ways you can do that well in fiction, like alchemical science is a good one. But the minute you start like, we're going to scientifically describe magic, or we're going to put it in scientific terms, I just get a little, you can put rules in your magic, but just don't make it too sciencey. The love of metal, though, is so fucking good. <laughs> of, oh, the reason why my elves hate iron is because they're freaking pigeons <laughs> yeah. who can magnetically who can magnetically hate themselves and you wave a brick of iron in their face and they're like you just it's like putting a blindfold on them they just stop functioning and I love that that is so good yeah because I don't think I've ever seen that anywhere else and it was and I'm like. I'm honestly surprised no one has stolen it. It's so wild and it's so good. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a weird it's a weird little thing, but it's it's a very clever idea of taking like this very this old thing about like cold iron or whatever and making it in a way that fits this I'd say like sensible world of Discworld. It's like it's not a bane. Mm-hmm. It's no, it just fucks with their it fucks with their senses. Yeah, and and it fits in with the witches' books particularly well because, like, the witches are kind of all about having some rational aspect to their magic, right? There can be a magical aspect that's like what we think of as magic, magic, but a lot of what they do has a rational explanation, whether that's them using psychology or them using like medicine and herb lore or what have you. And I feel mm. like having that like love of iron in the witch's book just meshes perfectly. And especially because it gets introduced in like what is just a weird sort of like cold open for the book. If you'll pardon the joke <laughs> or, uh, uh, with with, uh, with Jason, yeah, which is a fun weird scene with uh, with our boy. Yeah, it's interesting that death doesn't. Well, I mean, I guess you know, there's reasons. It's a very quiet book for him. Yeah, he doesn't really show up and collect any of the elves who get brutally murdered. Do elves? Is he the death of elves? 
I don't think he's the death of elves. He doesn't collect scrope either, though. I just had a realization that we, as the audience, should know that Granny is not dead. Because we didn't get a scene with death. Hmm. Yeah. Listen, you can know rationally in your mind that Granny is definitely not dead because there's more Granny books after this and still be like, no, in the foot, in the notes, because that was me the entire book. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When Nanny, I was in denial and then Nanny opened up the card. I'm like, does it say I ain't dead? Please tell me it says that. (laughs) I was on the edge of my seat. It's fine. Yeah. We have the reverse of Test of Time next. Honestly, it's just, for the most part, solid. He's he's in his wheelhouse here, I feel, for the most part. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. There are, obviously, bits that we're going to get into, but I think it's just... So do we have anything that we wish had done been done differently? Um... Mm, I, I have something really. on this, actually. Um, so there's this ongoing gag that has mm. appeared in the other witches books and is continued here of Nanny. And will continue. Yeah. Um, of Nanny being absolutely awful to her daughters-in-law. I think that that is a joke that has not fared well with time. Um, and it makes me pretty uncomfortable every time it rolls around. Um, I, I like the bit of her, like, not having to do any housework because she manipulates her family into doing the housework for her. But I feel like, I feel like it'd be better if it were written so that it was, like, the the more canny manipulation that we see her do in other situations. Like, oh, poor old me, I have, I can't reach up that high to dust. And, like, well, you know, the washing the dishes in the hot water hurts my hands or things like that as opposed to just her being like really shitty i think it would have held up better and i think it would reflect a lot of the same traits of nanny of like manipulating others so that to kind of get what she wants um while also still being like overall good um, without injecting like this weird streak of cruelty into her that always seems off color to me. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think even when it was written, it wouldn't necessarily be. I think it's a problem where sometimes with the witches, Terry does a bit of observational humor, but then brings in traits that don't really work for even our slightly anti-heroic heroines where yeah. like it, it doesn't that's that's not a thing that you really want in a character you sympathize with and i i feel like it would just be far more interesting if she were more canny about it oh for sure where it becomes the same thing that they do in other situations like the i'm just a poor old woman at the castle i can't possibly be any threat that kind of thing yeah exactly <laughs> a humble apple seller yeah yeah I'm but a humble apple seller. Please do my dishes for me. Apples. Let me in. Yeah, it's... <laughs> they embody three different kinds of uh, powerful woman in this village sphere, and uh, not all of them are mm-hmm. great. <laughs> yeah, she... Yeah. yeah, in the maiden-mother-crone dynamic, she's the mother, but she's definitely the matriarch. Yeah. And even, like, honestly, 
Magrat really leans that way for me at times where she becomes the, like, vessel for laughing at, like, specific types of feminists, which I'm not a huge fan of either. Yeah. This isn't really a thing that I think Terry should have done differently, but also selfishly. I just wish... I just... I don't enjoy the Red Collie and... And, and granny stuff. It's just uh, not fun to wade through. <laughs> but that's just selfish and subjective. <laughs> uh, for references, um, should we have a reannual reference section? I, th- I feel like <laughs> Things yes. that become important later. <laughs> um, tooth Fairy, Millennium, Millennium Hand and Shrimp. I don't understand <laughs> that. <laughs> We, we haven't met... Uh, I think the Foul Ron is next book. Yeah, we oh. haven't met the character yet. Um, I think that was we just... Get, we, get the, we get a reference to the Home for Sick Dragons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes! And uh, a, a Cohen reference. Genghis Cohen. Yeah. Which might be, honestly, one of the funnier, like, word plays that I... I've, it's bad, but it's like, it made me chuckle. I love the death content in here, and like we get to see where Binky gets his horseshoes put on. So, okay, I have questions about Granny and Ridcully's respective ages, considering that Lanker was time locked for over a decade. Like, what the fuck is going on? I think this falls under MST3K mantra stuff. Yeah. Just don't think about it too hard. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> repeat to yourself it's just a show <laughs> um I, I i think it's more just a thing of like uh they're both magical people who aging meh. yeah and honestly it i mean there's nothing to suggest that granny can't just be older than him now <laughs> yeah uh no you would be granny would be sick 14 years younger than him. Oh, okay. Still, I mean, there's also, nothing to suggest that that couldn't right, be the case. Right. Uh, witches, canonically, get spend less time young, but a lot more time old. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like Ridcully was, like, implied to be not particularly old by wizard standards, which is interesting. He's certainly very vigorous, but we know he's balding here. Yeah, I think he's I think he's like old man strong. Yeah, I've always felt like he was more like maybe 60 early to 85 mid-60s. 85 is the new 60 in wizards. Yeah. Yeah, I um I I honestly like for just like in my head, I was imagining like a non-pervy Master Roshi. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot of trouble had once been caused in Einstein University by a former Archchancellor's hat. Oh yeah. That was a good line. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot. I, I like uh, nothing. Nothing else is like standing me on like ooh something that I like. Yeah, we're we're getting into the particular... realm of like we've got thirteen books in our rearview mirror now, and so there's a lot to reference at this point. Um. Yeah, we don't need to pick out all of the you know character backstory references, right? <laughs> I forgot that I highlighted Casanando's business card and then wrote underneath <laughs> <It's>... sex criminal. <laughs> oh. 
yes. To people who don't know campaign podcast, this is a reference to that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Or the comic book entitled Sex Criminals. No, but specifically, this is a reference to Tristan Bizzle's cards. Yeah. Sex period. Yes, no, I wrote it like that. I stylized all lowercase with a period in between the words. Any other things that we think are important to talk about? So can we talk about how elves are, like, elves and cats are set as uh, this pair multiple oh, yeah. times? Yes. There, there is a specific, lo- like, like there, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's a specific thing where it talks about how elves will sit on anything, like, no matter how thin it is. So they're canonically by. That is, <laughs> yes. All, people, all elves are, all fairies are queer. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a resident, not a cat person, this this line jumped out at me. If cats looked like frogs, we'd realize what nasty, cruel little bastards they are. Uh, as a resident cat person, I also love this because I love my asshole predator that, like, I love my terrible whose ancestors son. decided to domesticate themselves for some reason. I love you, asshole predators. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, and I also liked the ongoing bee metaphor that was happening with the queens and the wasps. Yeah, that was a solid through line. Okay, so I'm not sure if the rest of you are on the same page with this, but I don't know if any of you felt like this book was, like, sort of weirdly punchy, like that it's a different tone in some ways from the previous books, in that... Uh, to clarify this, I feel like Terry at this point has kind of hit his stride and is just like on a roll with these books um, and is a lot more comfortable throwing in jokes that are just for the context or benefit of the audience without necessarily having them have a parallel or ma- or like making concrete concrete sense within the scope of Discworld itself. Um, and I'm not just talking about like the footnotes here. But contextualizing like gestures and things like that in modern terms. Um, and it's it's weird, but I feel like it works. And I feel like this is the first book where that really happens. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it just sort of feels like it's a I mean, with small gods. I think it was definitely at least somewhat there. But this definitely feels like it's. Maybe just like he's coming off small gods and it, it just feels like very settled in and it's it's got it's got a very confident Yeah, it feels like confident tone. and lived in. Maybe you change it out. Quite possibly. Like it also might be just that like he's fourteen books in at this point. Oh, this is the <laughs> point where you don't where the editors don't question you as much. <laughs> yeah. And, you or, know, there's a couple of characters in here who he's written like four times now. So he's just like, Yeah, I I can do this. Yeah, you know, there are so many books that don't even, so many series that don't make it to 14 books. And we've seen him come so far in terms of writing ability, like from Color of Magic, which is a goddamn disaster to hear. If Terry Pratchett was writing today, he would not be writing. He would not get to book 14. Right. <laughs> like, unless he was self-pubbing, he would not get to book 14. Right. <laughs> like... He would have to he would have to have his debut be like solidly like book ten territory. I, I do think it's I, I almost like for, for like posterity and talking about the trousers of time, 
I'm glad that we have 41 books of this. I would have honestly liked to see him take a stab at horror. Um, yeah. You get some, like, you get some good, like, one or two scenes with, especially, like, with Magrat and the elves. And I would just, like, I would love to see him, I, I would have loved to see him do, like, a suspense fantasy novel or something like that that was a little bit more thriller. Every time he leans into just that, like, like, dark, suspenseful imagery heavy shit it's really good yeah it's like there there's definitely part of that is because i think horror and comedy are two things that are um there's sort of like opposite ends of the same spectrum when it comes to like execution yeah we get a swing of that with some of the like the really dark shit with the elves and i'm like I have no idea how it would be, but I would have loved to see. I wonder what a book would look like, you know, try the other trouser leg of like what an entire book of that would look like from him. Just this is Justin, you're going to you're going to hate me for this, but I may make you read one more Terry Pratchett novel after we finish Shepherd's Crown. And that's Nation, which is roundly considered probably his best book. Okay, I don't think I read that. Oh, it's so good. It's not Discworld. Well, we'll throw it in. Uh, I don't know if you've read The Long Earth, Aaron. I read the first one. I, I didn't really get it. It was cool world building, but I didn't really get into it. Yeah. Um, I feel like Terry did the world building and Baxter did the writing, mm-hmm. which is an unfortunate mix. I had a thought of... So, Aaron, you dug up that thing that Neil Gaiman said about Terry, about how... Like the extent to which Terry was driven by like his own anger. Yeah. And that got me thinking about, you know, to what extent are we seeing that reflected in the Magrat we see here? Yeah, that's an interesting. It's an interesting question. Because I feel like I feel like a lot of that thing of just being the character being propelled forward by rage and anger but not like it's very interesting because a lot of the time when we see a character who's extremely angry that anger is used indiscriminately against other characters and the narrative and it's really interesting to see magrat here in that she's extremely angry justifiably for a a large number of reasons but she's focused that to like she doesn't lash out at sean she doesn't lash out at like any of the villagers etc she she's like focused that anger and is directing it where it belongs which i think is actually uncommon for a portrayal of a character that's that angry well, yes, except that it's also exactly how Granny was described a few books ago. Yeah. And and I wonder I wonder to what extent that is you know, that's reflecting Terry's own experiences with his own emotions. That could very well be, yeah. This is a side note, but for me a thing I wanted to mention is that we get a lot more for Nanny than we usually do. Which I thought was fun. Like we got a little bit of like yes. her family history, the absolutely <laughs> gorgeous Algam <Ogham> pun. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> that was such a nerdy deep cut. Oh god, so beautiful. Uh and just just like a little more detail of like there's been nanny ogs throughout history basically and I love it. It's not cuz she's a witch that she's this way. This is all her being an og. Yeah. My my favorite my favorite nanny og line is in fact from Oberon. It is you know Mrs. Og you have a way of showing respect to your god that would make the average atheist green with yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, line. Yeah. Mine was when Cassananda successfully guessed that Nanny Og's great grandmother hid and watched the uh, manly rituals. <laughs> that <was> so good. <laughs> yeah, when Nanny's like, "Yes, you know the men come up here and do mysterious things. What what the women never learn of?" And Cassananda's like, "Your great grandmother watched, didn't she?" And she's like, "How does she know?" I'm starting to get an idea of what Og womanhood looks like. <laughs> Yeah. So good. Okay, so... Uh, other stuff? I've got oh, some God. other stuff. Some oh, weird wow. other stuff to talk about. <laughs> okay, so... First first element on the weird other stuff is the patent crop ro- rotator, which is such a weird deep cut. Because, of course... Like, crop rotation is growing different things in a field in successive years in order to make sure that the soil stays healthy. Like, you grow corn one year and then beans the next. Um, And if we're comparing Lanker to, like, medieval-ish adjacent Europe, then Varen's introducing crop rotation is, like, actually a pretty nice innovation and would probably help help Lanker a lot. But, um... You don't do this with a machine. Um, so according to L Space, this is a reference to an episode of The Young Ones, which is a show that I've never seen. Um, and it mentions the invention of a patent crop rotator. And that's just such a bizarre deep cut. Um, and the another weird thing is that some of the names of the the like teen goth witch wannabes are weirdly similar to or, or they they'd be weirdly familiar to anybody who's read good omens um because we have agnes knit uh which is very close to agnes nutter and there's an amanita device uh which is eerily similar to anathema device in good omens i think those I think those are definitely yeah, um, which is fascinating and hilarious. So, random other things that popped in from Round World. Uh, Jane's siege weaponry was very funny to me, as was I think it was called Popular Warfare. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple like various uh, references to like Millside mm-hmm. and you know Claymores. The whole St. Christmas Day speech was really good. <laughs> yes. And then and then Nanny coming in and being like, y'all actually listen to me. Like, <laughs> uh, At one point, the librarian is classified as a pet to uh, get around some of the... To get a slightly reduced rate on, on coach fare uh, and gets a collar that says Pongo, which is a reference to uh, orangutan's Latin name, which is Pongo Pygmagus. 
Uh, also, elves have Spock blood since they can't have mm-hmm. uh, heme in their their blood since that's iron. Mm-hmm. They're described as bleeding green, green blue, and there's a bunch of they might be giants references. All of them really? offhand. Yeah. Uh, Millennium Hand and Shrimp, that comes from, uh, f- apparently for a lot of the, a lot of the garbage text, uh, in the book, Terry had a text generator that he'd fed with, among other things, Chinese food menus and, uh, lyrics from Flood. Wait, so, so he was basically doing, like, AI weirdness before it was cool? Yeah. It's wild, and... That sounds so in character for Terry as well. Like yeah, he's he was, such a nerd. Yeah, he was so into that sort of thing from everything I've read. I had a, I had one more reference that I appreciated. Where, like, he's talking about how, like, normal directions don't work in the multiverse, so you have to invent new ones. Like, east of the sun, west of the moon, behind the north wind, <laughs> at the back of beyond, there and back again beyond the fields we know we're like i'm pretty sure literally all of these are just references to either fairy tale names or like book names yeah uh-huh. those are all really good or folk rock which actually one of these is like slightly incorrect because i'm pretty sure the reference is for at the back of the north wind but do you do y'all want to talk about shipping there's nothing to ship yeah I think we hit an OTP for me, frankly. <laughs> but but what yeah. about Casanunda and Nanny? Okay, though? that is that okay, is they, very. They, cute. I will actually like say that like I, I Casanunda is like honestly charming and like relative. He's, he's sweet. He's sweet, and that is honestly like like we don't get too many like characters who are like. I think, like, both smart and sweet in Discworld. And that's honestly something... And that, that's, like, it's neat. I, I think that's... And I think specifically um, the... Like, he could so easily be, like, a sleeping around, basically misogynistic nightmare. Uh, and he's not. He's great. He's so genuine and, like... He, I love all the scenes with him and Nanny where she's like listing all of her faults and he's just like chin hands. I love you. And I I do like also that they get to be, you don't get the sense that this is like a sweeping love affair. This is just something fun and casual and nice, which is also fun to have here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find the, the section now where he, it's his thoughts about her and something about like uh he appreciated the fact that her 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 mind was as broad as something or other oh broad enough to hold three football fields and a bowling alley right right and i i like that also for Casanunda. like i i like that nanny has found somebody who really really appreciates her for who she is. But I also really love it for Casananda himself that, you know, in Nanny, he's found somebody who he's comfortable with. Like, and it seems like he's maybe more comfortable with her than with a lot of the people he's with. Yeah, he he's a dwarf. So he cares 
extremely deeply about every minute detail of the romance because that's how you know that's how dwarven artisans are they carry they care mm-hmm. about every minute detail it just so happens that his particular skill is you know casanova casananda yeah and i i love the two of them do we want to rate this book let's do it sure aaron what would you rate this book? i give it 11 out of 11 standing stones Anna, what would you rate this book? I'm going to give it 990,000 out of a million parallel universes. Minna, what would you rate this book? Two out of two trouser legs. I will give it 10 out of 12 back issues of Jane's Siege Weaponary diagram. Maybe like a little fraying at the knee of that, of those trousers. And now we get to the part where we are officially done with Lords and Ladies. Oh boy, oh boy. Our next book... Book 15 is Men at Arms. Let me go pull up the back cover. Exciting, exciting. Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, Men this at Arms, one. a novel of Discworld. Book, 14, book 15 of 40. A young dwarf's dream. Corporal Carrot has been promoted. He's now in charge of the new recruits guarding Ankhamor Pork, Discworld's greatest city from barbarian tribes, miscellaneous marauders, unlicensed thieves, and such. It's a big job, particularly for an adopted dwarf. But an even bigger job awaits. An ancient document has just revealed that Ankhamor Pork, ruled for decades by disorganized crime, has a secret sovereign, and his name is Carrot. And so it begins the most awesome epic encounter of all time, or at least all afternoon, in which the fate of a city, indeed of the universe itself, depends on a young man's courage, an ancient sword's magic, and a three-legged poodle's bladder. It's interesting back copy. It is. I don't remember the poodle. I feel like that gives away way too much. But also nothing. Yes. Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.